Hello, and welcome back to Father Time. I'm Scott Kane here with Chase Green and Matt McBurrier. Hello, guys. Hey. This podcast is intended to be by fathers, for fathers, and the whole goal is for us to help each other as fathers to be the best that we can be, to be the spiritual leaders that our homes need and need desperately. This season's theme has been, where are all the godly men? We're looking for the faithful fathers and husbands who step up to the task, who lead their homes. When it comes down to it, our wives and our children need and want heroes. And a good man wants to be his family's hero. So the question is, where are the heroes? We've been looking at Hebrews 11, focusing on those godly men from Faith's Hall of Fame. And some of those heroes are specifically named. Some of them are just described, not actually named in the chapter. Some were fathers, others weren't, but every one of them down to the wire was a hero. And we can learn from every one of them. Now, real godly men rise to the occasion because of a faith, a trust in God. And as it said in Hebrews eleven sixteen, God's not ashamed to be their God. That statement in and of itself is powerful. Before we get to the uh, men we're going to discuss today, let's think about that. God's not ashamed to be their God. But the heroes mentioned in Hebrews 11 made plenty of mistakes. They had their share of flaws. For instance, Chase, we've already talked about Abraham in a previous episode. But just briefly, what were some of the examples of his flaws? Well, I think last time we talked about Abraham's indecisiveness. You know, it took him a while to get to the land of Canaan. Uh, he didn't go immediately. Well, he, he headed off on the trip, but uh, he ends up making a stop there for a while in uh, the land of Haran. And uh, we didn't uh, say, you know, what's the definitive reason for that? We didn't really give a definitive reason, but we kind of conjectured that there could have been various reasons why he would have made that pit stop, so to speak. Uh, but we could kind of talk about indecisiveness there. And then also uh, a definite flaw on Abraham's part would be his dishonesty, you know, toward those who wanted to take his wife, uh, which showed that his faith wasn't quite developed yet uh, at that point. Now, of course, later Abraham appears in Faith's Hall of Fame in Hebrews chapter 11, and he's known for his faith. Uh, but at that point early on in his life, uh, we wouldn't characterize him as completely faithful, we might say. So he had his fair share of flaws. Now, Matt, thinking about Abraham, what makes more sense for us as dads today to look at Abraham's mistakes and mistakes of those other heroes and imitate them as though their errors are an excuse for us to do the same? Or should we just ignore their flaws, pretend like they never happened? Or should we identify them, maybe learn from them, avoid them? Yeah, I, obviously, the I think the clear answer is, well, yeah, don't don't imitate people on their bad behavior. Um, you know, first Corinthians 11, one, you know, Paul states, imitate me as I imitate Christ. And that's something that we all need to consider as we're going through life in any circumstance. Uh, also, it's not wise to follow bad examples. Uh, Proverbs two and verse six, for Lord gives wisdom uh, from his mouth come knowledge and understanding. So we're looking at this. And, you know, there are two real ways to acquire wisdom. Uh, there's a preferred method and there's an unpreferred method. One is stronger than the other. Um, your preferred method is to look at what somebody else has done and learn from their mistakes. The other one is probably the strongest uh, teacher, and that is make your own mistake and then go, wow, I shouldn't have done that. Um, we should look at these guys and go, yeah, they, they should not have done that. 
look at their good example, follow their good example, try to learn from the bad example and gain in wisdom. Of course, the opposite aspect of that is, uh, you know, it's foolish if you don't heed that. You know, Proverbs 1, 7, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. But fools despise wisdom and instruction. You are basically when you go, oh, I'm just going to kind of do what someone else has done when they did wrong. It's, you know, the Bible considers that as foolish. So we're looking at these fellows in Hebrews 11, and we're wanting to learn from them both in positives and negatives. But it's an encouragement to us to think about the fact that God's not ashamed to be called their God, not because of their stakes, but really uh, in spite of those mistakes. Now, that being said, heroes can make mistakes. Heroes might have regrets, and we can learn from their flaws. This can be said of the six men that we're going to examine today. Hebrews 11.32 lists the names of Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, David, and Samuel, as well as the prophets. But those six are the ones who are specifically named. This list of names might almost sound like an Old Testament variety pack when it comes to the characters, but they've got a lot in common, both in terms of strengths and weaknesses. Matt, what did these six men have in common as far as their impact on the nation during their lifetimes? So, I mean, they, they've got a, a really good uh, uh, set of qualifications here when you look at their resume, and that is they all lead Israel to victory. Uh, and so that that's the, the great aspect. I think there's all obviously there's a common thread that there's some negatives here as far as uh, what is associated with them and that leading their own households um, because, you know, they have some lackluster performances there. Uh, but these are judges and um, they are coming up and they're leading a military victory here. And um, and they do what they set out to do. They they def, uh, defend uh, their nation uh, from all this oppression that is going on. So, Chase, we're talking about these guys that are national heroes on the battlefield. People will, people would sing songs about David. Samuel so often committed these names are names of heroes on the battlefield. But what about the home front? Now, we know we all blunder from time to time, but. Some mistakes will do catastrophic and irreparable damage. What are some of the behaviors, just by way of introduction, that either could have or did damage the homes of these heroes? Yeah, so we're going to talk about some of these guys uh, in a lot more detail in a moment, but just kind of a brief rundown, uh, kind of giving some some adjectives for for some of these guys. So Barak, or Barak, uh, he hesitated to lead. And not only did he hesitate to lead himself, but he also relied on a couple of women around him to do his job for him, essentially. And the names uh, Deborah and JL come to mind. Uh, and so he's having to uh, let them step in when he should have been leading against uh, the Canaanite that he faced. Uh, the king's name was Jabin. And there's a particular general by the name of Sisera that uh, he is going to be facing in battle. Reminds me of a certain uh, little boy that I know that always wants to make sure that his sister goes with him to uh, turn on the light when they're going into a dark room. And uh, I actually used to be that way when I was a kid, too. But uh, that reminds me of Barak. You know, he wanted Deborah to go with him. Judges 4, verse 8. We're going to talk about that verse here in a little bit. So uh, do husbands ever act like this and expect their wives to lead instead of the husband? I think they do sometimes. So that's something important we're going to notice in a moment on uh, Barak. Now, Gideon. 
Gideon uh, had a legacy of uh, inconsistency, hesitancy, we might say, as well as mistrust. He uh, doubted his ability to win the battle against the Midianites, and he ends up testing God three times just so that he can gain the confidence, if you will, to go out and, and battle. Now, uh, how many men sit and uh, wait around when it comes to leading instead of acting? And we've talked about that several times in previous episodes of uh, Father Time. Jephthah, we're going to talk about him as well, and he is known for his rash vow. Judges uh, 11, verse 30, he uh, is going to vow something terrible. We're going to talk about just how terrible that was in uh, just a little bit. But we should never make rash vows to anyone where it might end up putting us in a no-win situation, we might say. Samson, he was uh, incompetent. You know, uh, He was very unwise, and what he was particularly unwise with was his promiscuity. He was uh, dabbling in all manner of sexual sins. And, uh, you know, he was Israel's strong man. If there ever was a strong man in Israel, Samson was it physically. Uh, but, unfortunately, he had a woman problem, as we're alluding to. And Delilah especially comes along, and she ends up being the death of him, we might say. And uh, will she be able to convince him to give up the source uh, of his strength? Well, not only when we think about Samson, but we think about other men. How many men have fallen due to the destructive charms of a seductress. Affairs, both physical and even emotional affairs, affairs uh, still cause tremendous harm to the family. A couple more. Uh, Samuel, he entrusted his sons to the priesthood, but he failed. They were not uh, the same quality of man as Samuel was. Uh, Joel and Abijah in First Samuel chapter 8, they did not walk in his ways. They did evil, and this ends up leading the Israelites to beg for a king. Uh, and we probably know the rest of the story on that. But how many of us are uh, not rearing our sons and daughters in the nurture and admonition of the Lord? There are lasting consequences for that. And then finally, we want to look at a case study on David and uh, a lustful look toward uh, Bathsheba uh, as she was bathing, which he, he shouldn't have even been at home at this time anyway. If you look at the text, it says uh, that this was occurring when kings normally went to war, but David was at home, and he's got this lustful look towards uh, Bathsheba, which we'll talk about in more detail momentarily, and uh, it leads to the sexual sin of adultery, and it also leads to the murder of Bathsheba's uh, husband, Uriah, as well. So these are the, the folks that we're going to spotlight in this particular episode. And uh, that's just kind of giving the brief overview before we go into more detail. And it's interesting, just hinting on some of the things that we're really going to elaborate momentarily. All of these men were national heroes, but they had their flaws. They had, they can be overcome, but the fact is the flaws were there. And those flaws, again, either could or did threaten to do catastrophic and irreparable damage to each of their homes, their families. And the same can be said today. And any father that's worth his salt wants to avoid catastrophic and irreparable damage to his home. Now, this discussion that we're going to pursue today is for every dad, regardless of age, regardless of station. Maybe dad is a church hero. He's an elder. He's a deacon. He's a preacher, teacher, personal worker. Maybe he's a community hero. He's a soldier, a policeman, a fireman, a doctor, a teacher, a social worker. Whatever the role 
in the church or in the community, terrific, great. But is he a home hero? If he's a church or community hero, but not a hero to his family, then he's going to live with a hole in his heart. Either that or there's something drastically wrong. If he's a hero to his family, then he's going to be a hero to the community, to the church, whether his family accepts it or not, whether the church or community realizes it or not. If he'll be a hero to his family, then he's a hero everywhere else. Doesn't matter if he gets credit from man, he's recognized by God. So let's look at these six men. And we'll do it in the order that they're uh, recorded in the Old Testament instead of the order of Hebrews 11.32. The theme or title for this particular episode is The Home Needs Heroes Too. These were national heroes, but their flaws were catastrophic at home. We want to avoid their catastrophic and irreparable mistakes. Now, first we get to Barak. Judges chapters 4 and 5. We're not given specific details about his home. But we are told, as Chase mentioned earlier, about his hesitancy to lead. And when a hesitancy to lead occurs in the home, it can forever taint dad's influence. With Barak and the Israel's uh, northern tribes, they were being oppressed by the Canaanites. The prophetess Deborah sent word from central Israel that God had commanded Barak specifically to lead his people to battle. Barak balked at the God-given leadership role. He told Deborah, I'll go if you'll go, but if you don't go, I'm staying home. I'm not going. Because of this, he would not be remembered for, for honor. He'd be remembered more for his hesitancy than for his victory. Now, brief overview of those details, Chase. We as dads may not be commanded to lead 10,000 men into battle at Mount Tabor, but what has God commanded every husband and father for us to do? Well, we are to be in command of our families. And uh, we've mentioned this multiple times on Father Time, Genesis 18, verse 19. Abraham, uh, it was said of him, for I know him that he will command his children. Incidentally, just as a side note on Abraham's case, it said, will future tense command his children? And there may or may not be something to take note of there as you know, as it pertains to what if it said is commanding present tense, but it said will future tense. So, but anyways, you know, you think about whether or not uh, we are in command, in charge, uh, in our families. Uh, the buck stops with me in in my household. The, the buck stops with you guys uh, in, in your households. Uh, Ephesians 6 verses 1 through 4 rests squarely on uh, our shoulders as uh, Christian husbands and fathers. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother, which is the first commandment with promise. Am I pushing that in, in my household? Am I demanding that honor that is due to a husband and wife? Uh, that it may be well with you, and you may live long in the earth. And you fathers, notice that uh, this is so important the whole family, but then Paul singles out fathers there in verse 4. Do not provoke your children to wrath, but bring them up in the training and admonition of the Lord, or the nurture and admonition of the Lord. Are we commanding that ourselves, or are our wives having to step in and take the lead, like we see with Deborah in the case of Gideon, uh, because we are not doing our part? Matt, we're commanded to lead. Chase just explained it, hit on the uh, relevant passages. We're commanded to lead our families closer to God. 
But what about the dads who lead like Barak, essentially saying, okay, I'll lead if you guys will follow, but if you're not going to follow, I'm not going to try to lead. What happens when dad only leads because he knows that they're going to follow? Is the Barak dad even a leader or is he more of a puppet or maybe a hood ornament? Yeah, that, that obviously is just not true leadership. Um, when you're leading, you're out front, you're doing, doing what needs to be done. Um, there's been in years past, I don't know if this is still something that people are saying, but I know that we've had uh, people in politics say, oh, I'm going to I'm going to lead from behind. You can't do that. You can't do that. You have to be out in front, you know, doing things. You know what? A, a good leader uh, knows that, you know, he's going to have to be, you know, out front doing something that people are going to follow his example if he's actually leading. I mean, that's a whole word here. Um, but really, when we're getting into this this question here of this Bayrak dad, you know, um, being a leader, uh, if if you find yourself in this situation, let's let's just get get some thoughts going on this. Um, I believe that most people uh, are starving for leadership. There's a there are congregations that don't have elders and they're starving for leadership. You look at um, well, just here. This is a good example. I've heard this when it comes to just children. But, um, you know, if you have a dog, you know, when you when you train your dog, that's when you know that you have a happy dog because the dog knows what is expected of it. You know, if you don't train it, you don't give it boundaries, then when it goes outside that and you flip uh, flip the lid and get onto the dog or, you know, you know, smack the dog or whatever you're doing, um, you know, it's just living constantly in fear. It needs to be trained when it's trained. It's happy. You know, children are like that, too. When they're trained, they're happier. When they know where the boundaries are, they're happier. Um, and like Chase said, you know, as far as women, you know, I, I don't think that um, women really want to just in general. I think this is a, a general statement, but in general, I think women do want their husbands to lead. Um, but, you know, women are going to lead in the home if the husband doesn't take charge. They're just going to do it. I've seen I see so many people in the church. Uh, so many women leading their families spiritually uh, when the fathers should be doing it. You're, you know, your family uh, might be willing to follow you, um, but you need to know uh, what you're doing. You know, you need to have a, a game plan and it doesn't matter. Uh, it's, I think there's so many examples of this in the Bible where people are, are you know, good leaders. Um, you know, I think namely Joshua, we spoke about Joshua before. Uh, but Joshua leads his family, you know, Joshua 24, 15, Joshua's leading his family and they follow, you know, he doesn't say, well, I'm going to lead if they're going to follow. He says, no, this is, this is the thing. As for me and my house, we're going to serve the Lord. This is it. Um, he doesn't ask for permission. He is the permission. This is what we're doing. This is how you lead. Um, you're not asking people, you know, this is what drives me crazy with some leaders today in various roles. They ask the people under them what they want. That's not really leadership. You should have some wisdom in knowing what they want and what they need and then make a decision. If you make a you know poor decision, it's on you. Uh, but a lot of leaders today, so-called, want to ask for permission from the congregation or from their family for stuff. But this is not what leadership looks like. You know, um, again, too, 
families may not know what leadership looks like. Um, and the father needs to step up and learn how to do that. You may have been in a home that didn't have a, a, a good leadership, you know, from your father and you don't know how to do it. Well, how, how do you do that? Well, you got to strive to make yourself better. Um, uh, and then like in regards to that, you don't, you may have um, uh, a wife and, and children that they just don't, they don't know what good le- leadership looks like. That might be a point that you go, Oh, well, I, I can, I can kind of get by here. Um, look, if your wife and, and kids have no clue what a leader looks like, uh, you, you don't need to look to them to see if, if you're doing a good job. What you can do is you need to look to the Bible to see if you're doing a good job. Compare yourself to the scriptures. That's really where we need to be focusing our attention. Are we, are we uh, you know, imitating these good aspects of these people's lives? I know that's um, uh, part of uh, the problem that people have and look into the scriptures, they, they see uh, these heroes of faith and they go, well, they did bad stuff. Well, we're not imitating the bad stuff. We're imitating the good things. So when dad won't take the lead, when the family either has to beg him or he won't take the lead because he doesn't know they're willing to follow and nobody's really communicating or when he won't take the lead and they desperately need it, but they're just, they're kicking back at him. Either way, the family's going to fall apart uh, with, with Barak. He, he almost fits a description that uh, a movie a number of years ago depicted uh, a woman talking about the husband's the head of the uh, home, but the wife is the neck and the neck turns the head. Well, that's the kind of position where Barak put himself saying that he's essentially not going to go anywhere unless uh, he's turned in that direction from the body. It's a tail wagging the dog situation. Now, regarding Barak, it could be suggested that Israel triumphed not because of his leadership, but in spite of it. And I don't think we ever want that to be said about us. We want our children to be faithful Christians. We want our children to to be the kind of people God wants them to be as a result of our influence, not in spite of it. Uh, Let's move forward and talk about Gideon. Judges chapter six through eight. Now Gideon is best known for destroying that altar of Baal. He sought those multiple proofs from God, like uh, Chase mentioned earlier. He's the one that led 300 in a nighttime attack against a multitude. Uh, He led 300 before Leonidas did. They used the lamps and the trumpets to cause the enemy camp to implode. Uh, The Midianites and Amalekites just started fighting each other. After victory, Israel comes to Gideon. They say, we want you to be our ruler. Gideon says, I'm not going to rule over you. My son's not going to rule over you. The Lord shall rule over you. Now, we hear about all these things on Gideon, and it's like, hey, let's invite him to dinner. I like this fella. And there's a lot to celebrate with Gideon. But he had some inconsistent decisions, especially in the last part of the record about his life, that greatly hurt his family and his legacy. One of those decisions pertained to an ephod. The second pertained to the name he gave his son. Now, as far as that ephod goes, after Gideon refused to accept rule over Israel like a a king, he posed a sort of a consolation reward. He asked for all of the gold that they had taken from the ears of their defeated enemies. Turned out to be about 50 pounds worth of gold. Now he used this to make and to finance an extravagant ephod, an upper body garment, apparently similar to the one worn by the high priest described in Exodus 28. Now we can debate whether Gideon sinned by even making the ephod, but nobody can deny that this apparent replica became an unholy relic and an object of worship 
for Gideon, for his house, for the nation, to the point that Judges 8, 26, and 27, it became a snare to them. Now, now Chase, regardless of whether he's saying by even making the ephod, regardless if he even intended it to, to be the outcome, given Israel's history with idolatry, their tendency to worship objects instead of making God the object of their worship, how smart, how wise was Gideon to make that ephod in the first place? Well, he was very foolish, and uh, that's all there is to it. You know, uh, we're talking about the same Israel that worshipped a golden calf that Aaron made, uh, you know, leaving uh, the Exodus, uh, in the book of Exodus. And then uh, eventually they're going to end up worshipping a bronze serpent that Moses had lifted up in the wilderness. And I think it was Hezekiah that ended up calling that bronze uh, serpent Nehushtan, which just means just a piece of brass, but they were worshipping it. And uh, they end up also worshiping golden calves uh, at one point in, in uh, Israel's history when Jeroboam put golden calves in uh, Dan and Bethel and told them, hey, worship these instead of worshiping God at, at Jerusalem. So uh, it's about the same as a drunkard walking in to the liquor store and saying, uh, I'll just buy a candy bar. Uh, that's playing with fire. That's asking for trouble. When it comes to Israel's history of idolatry, why would we not expect that they would end up idolizing uh, that golden ephod that uh, he made? So a, a lesson kind of to learn from Gideon, even here, is that some things, even if they're not inherently wrong, can do some real damage to the family, especially when the family is not mature enough, uh, not uh, mature enough in the faith or spiritual enough. To, to make the right decisions with whatever this choice is dad made. Uh, Matt, Gideon claimed to serve Jehovah God, but this ephod, without a doubt, became a substitute for the ephod that, that God had authorized for his authorized priesthood. Could it be said that Gideon's ephod contributed to a, a denominated form of religion? And, and if that's the case, moving forward with the question, adding to it, what physical considerations could a New Testament Christian father mess up and overemphasize today that, that might give his children a skewed view of God and of Christianity? Yeah, so I want to take this from um, the angle of what, you know, I think probably is going on with Gideon. Um, now, of course, uh, I could be wrong, and I'm not trying to get into any sort of debate here, but, um, you know, I don't think that what he does, he does with any ill intention, you know, because it became a snare. I'm kind of going off that term there. Uh, but it ended up causing people to fall away, as we've already mentioned. Um, we certainly have to be aware of our actions today. While, you know, maybe, maybe, you know, while it was foolish, um, maybe he didn't have any ill will, you know. And just thinking about that, you know, I think we need to point out that we don't know how much of a problem our actions today may cause for the future. And so we do have to be careful. I mean, there, there are several instances in Scripture that I think that we could point to. Uh, one, I think about Esau and his birthright. I mean, he he um, sells that for some food. He gives that away. And uh, that man, that is so profane. You know, he and he's mentioned uh, as that. But he um, he gives that away. Well, that has some really large implications later on. Um, you think about Ham um, uh, with Noah, uh, Cain, and his prophesied to be in servitude. 
and um, you know, the Amorites come about because of, of Canaan. And so there's um, there's all kinds of things. You don't know what even even small things can become big things. Uh, we know big things can be even bigger uh, problems. But uh, we need to make sure that we are keeping our priorities straight. We need to teach our children what's right. Um, we need to teach them, uh, you know, think about this. Just think simply worshiping God, you know. Um, we need to do that in spirit and truth, John 4, 24. You know, we, we, we're doing that in spirit and in truth. Uh, that means, you know, doing things the right way and doing things with the right attitude. Now, a lot of times, uh, you know, I hear sermons. I've preached these kind of sermons, too. We're heavy on the truth sometimes. This is this is what is right. But the spirit is just as important. We have to have this right attitude as well. Um, you can't have one or the other. I, I say this sometimes. I say, look. You know, um, the church is heavy on truth, and that's good. Um, the denominational world is heavy on spirit. That's good. But the error comes in when you leave out the other. You have to have spirit and truth together. And so, are we doing things the right way? Okay, that's good. But teach your children how to worship in spirit. What are you thinking about when you're partaking of the Lord's Supper? You know, is this this kind of ceremonial thing? I, I hear all the time. Someone will get up and say, this is the most important part of worship. How? Where do we see that? Where do we see that in Scripture? You stop stop doing that. We got we don't have any evidence for that. What do you got to do? You got to think about you know keeping it in the context. What is this all about? What are you thinking about when you're partaking of the Lord's Supper? You know, are you listening to the prayer while things are being prayed? You know, are we doing that? Are you singing with your heart? You know, are we singing what is doctrinally right? You know, are we giving? You know, how do we do that? Is that just kind of relative to adults or should we teach our children to give? Absolutely. We should teach our children to give. Well, how do you give? You give prosperous as you as prospered. You give cheerfully. You're doing all this. And so we we should be teaching our children about these things. And two, I think this is a big one, too. When it comes to the church, we need to focus on the people uh, more so than the building. I know lots of uh, congregations say, oh, you know what? We got to. Uh, I've, I've even heard preachers say stuff like this. Well, oh, we have to have a nice looking building because the nice looking building is going to draw people in. According to John chapter six, that's not what's supposed to be drawing people in. God's supposed to be drawing people in. Let's right. let's point to what is right. Let's teach our children these things. You know, teach them, teach them about evangelism. Let's bring people into the church, not the building. It's the body of Christ. Let's bring everybody together into the body of Christ. And, um, you know, we teach them these things and try to teach them things in context. Um, you know, think about baptism. Well, what is it for? You know, yeah, it's for salvation. OK, but when you're baptized, you got to teach them that you're added to the church in Acts chapter two, verses 42 and 47. You got to see this stuff. You know, you teach them. What did they know on the day of Pentecost? We've got to know this stuff. And so, you know, I think the best way to do this is to teach your children by keeping things in context. But, you know. Uh, all this, uh, all this being said, um, you know, you can have an important effect on your kids. But I think, too, what should scare us, we've talked about a lot of positive here, but what should scare us is that if we give a negative example, I have uh, heard uh, of so many families, and I actually just got through preaching on this the other day. Uh, where they will they will uh, skip out on worship because they have you know schoolwork to do or they've got um, um, you know a, a 
job or they've got, you know, uh, sports, some kind of recreation, they're on vacation. Um, if you teach your children that it's okay to miss worship when any of those things come up, what you're telling them is that is more important than worship. Now, I know a lot of people don't look at it like that, but that's exactly what you're teaching them. You say it's fine to skip worship if you have a job. Well, guess what they're going to do whenever they grow up? They're going to skip worship because of their job. You know, if you teach them it's fine when you're on vacation, you can take vacation from the Lord. Guess what they're going to do? They're going to do that too. You know, they're actually going to do this, and they're actually going to take it a step further. And uh, I've known of people that they they um, you know did this with um, sports and school and all these things that we've mentioned, and um, you know their kids are lost today. They don't go anywhere. And it's because they saw mom and dad not put God first. And that bad example led to all these other things. And that's what you see here. This is there. There was no wisdom here. Well, for what whatever reason this is going on, there's no wisdom here. And um, and there at least is uh, no real effort to correct this wrong. And that's, and if a, I, that's a bad thing. And if I may add real quick, uh I think we have may have touched on this in a prior episode, but there have been studies done that have shown that particularly as it pertains to the father figure in the home, if the father figure in the home is not what he should be, if he's not attending faithfully, etc., that has a particularly tremendous impact on the future faithfulness or not of the of the uh, children in the home. If, if the father's not what he needs to be, then that has a much larger impact toward uh, the children not being what they need to be when they uh, grow up as well. Which is all the more reason for dad to be spiritual. Uh, And by spiritual, we mean setting your affection on things above Colossians three. It's interesting throughout the new Testament, the number of times that the apostle Paul emphasizes putting a focus on truly spiritual things instead of falling for the the rudiments of religion or the, the fundamental ideas of a physical uh, a man-oriented uh, practice of faith that just deals with uh, materialistic mindsets. He had to deal with that with the Jews because they turned the law of Moses into a checklist religion. He had to deal with that with the Colossians. He hit on the same idea really with the Ephesians, the Philippians. Those things being said, when we have that checklist mindset, we've done essentially that. And we put the focus on formality and, like Matt said, ritualism. And we can look at Gideon as having the best of intentions. I'm with Matt. When Gideon set out to make that ephod, uh, based on everything he had done previously, the man had some misunderstandings, yes. But uh, when he made that ephod, let's give him the benefit of the doubt. But it's still fell to be an error and a mistake because of the fact that he was more focused on this material idea than he was God. And, uh, you know, there are responsibilities that we have that we do do need to take care of. them. It's not wrong to have a church building and it's not wrong to take care of it, but it is wrong to start looking at the church building. Like Matt said, it's more important than anything else. So it's not a matter of just discarding anything material and turning our religion into something so vague that it can't even be seen, but it's a matter of making sure that we have our sights set on where they're really important. Uh, Those things being said, uh, moving forward, if Gideon's ephod seems inconsistent, the name that he gave his illegitimate son is just downright baffling. The same man that said, I'm not going to rule and my son's not going to rule, named his concubine son Abimelech. 
and Abimelech means father of the king. <laughs> really? Now, Abimelech is the one that would later use political posturing, prejudice. He's the one that his campaign was, hey, I'm of the same blood as you. Now, not that any president would ever use that kind of approach, but I'm of the same bloodline and uh, ethnicity as you. So why don't you make me king to rule? And it worked. The men of Shechem made him king after which he executed all but one of his 70 brothers and the uh, Jotham just simply got away and he did it all execution style on one stone. Gideon's family legacy ruined. Now, all that being said, based on language of Judges 8.31, it may well be the case that Abimelech was not a birth name, but instead a, a nickname or a surname, presumably because Gideon recognized the boy's obvious ambition. Be that as it may, Matt, whether the name Abimelech was given as a, a an original name or a, a nickname, how wise is it for dads who claim to follow God to instill or to encourage selfish ambitions or a thirst for earthly glory in their children? Well, first, I'm going to say I really hope it was a nickname because uh, given the circumstances, um, this should not have been his name. Um, you know, we are in the process of, uh, of uh, having our, our sixth, and um, uh, it's a boy. And um, we've been talking about names and trying to figure that out and trying to uh, stick with our uh, Greek theme and, you know, for the boys and the T theme for the boys. And we have Timothy and Titus. We're like, well, what do we name them? And, and so, uh, you know, it's really funny. People are going, uh, uh, you know, they'll say all kinds of things. We've, we've gotten some some decent names, but a lot of people have gone to things like Theophilus and Theodore and and, say, and then you can call him Theo. And I said, uh, I've got a problem with that because uh, the Theophilus means lover of God. The Theo aspect of it is God. <laughs> There's no way. I am calling my son God on a daily basis. There's just no way I'm doing that. Um, and so uh, maybe maybe I'm weird, but I don't think I am. I think that's going to be a little crossing the line here. But um, but surely, you know, hopefully this was a nickname. Um, aside from that, um, you know, we need to be teaching our children humility. Um, I think that this is a, a quality that is... Um, not taught so much today. Um, but, you know, with humility comes wisdom. Proverbs 11 and verse 2. Uh, humility is fearing the Lord. Proverbs 22 and verse 4. You know, and we got to remember uh, to let God exalt us. First Peter 5, 6. You know, we're, we're should, we should really think of ourselves, you know, kind of lowly. And remember that God shows favor to the humble. Uh, James chapter 4. Uh, so, you know, we, we need to be teaching the opposite of this uh no selfish ambition you know no thirst for glory no delusions of grandeur here um you know we just need to uh, we just need to teach our children to be humble servants i think that that is um quite quite a um quite a missed opportunity for parents um man you know the world would be a better place if everybody were just a little bit more humble. And um, I think that that is a, a big thing to, to consider in all this. You know, we need to encourage that over 
uh, our own gain. Um, we need to think about others before ourselves. You know, like we could go on and on and on and talk about various verses that say these things. Uh, but this is the opposite of what a Christian ought to be. Now, Chase, let's take what Matt just said and press it forward a little bit with some specifics. What are some ways that dads today might steer their children towards selfish ambition and the self-destruction that goes along with it? Well, I think there's a fine line between confidence and arrogance. And I think we want our children to be confident in the right way, but definitely not arrogant or prideful. And uh, when dads talk their children up too much, it tends to lead towards uh, children becoming arrogant. For example, well, son, you're the best student in the class by far. Well, if a, a kid hears that all the time, whether or whether, you know, whether or whether it not, it might be true academically, but if he's hearing that all the time, then that's going to be inflating his ego, promoting his self-esteem too highly to the point that he is starting to think, well, you know what? Dad's right. I am the smartest in the room, you know, and nobody wants to see somebody have that kind of attitude. Another example, well, well, daughter, you're the best pitcher in this softball league and it's not even close, you know, that sort of attitude. Uh, Again, whether that is the case or not athletically, why not teach our children some humility rather than pride and arrogance? Rather than teaching your daughter, well, you're the best pitcher in in this entire state in softball, why don't you teach her, you know, you're you're doing a great job, and why don't you go uh, find some other pitchers and see if you can help them to be all that they can be uh, so that they can improve too and make it more about helping others rather than focusing on self. You know, it could be – it doesn't have to be sports or academics. It could be music. It could be art, uh, the martial arts, et cetera. Uh, I think in any field – you're going to find people that uh, become uh, arrogant in their pursuits. And we need to make sure that our young people are not that way. Uh, Failing to teach our kids to be a team player, failing to uh, tell our kids, you know, it's not all about you. It's not all about you. It's about uh, the entire team or what have you. Uh, Failing to teach good sportsmanship. If we fail to teach these sorts of virtues to our kids, then they're definitely probably going to, Uh, fall prey to this mindset of uh, pridefulness, Uh, giving them an attitude of selfishness uh, or my way or the highway. Now, don't get me wrong on this. We definitely need to encourage our kids. Uh, We need to build them up, edify them. And again, that kind of gets into the confidence side of things, but not, uh, again, artificially uh, building up their uh, self-esteem. And I actually prefer to use the term self-worth. Uh, rather than self-esteem, because esteem actually has the connotation of a of an ego, a pride. And so uh, let them build up their self-worth naturally through a sense of accomplishment, uh, through hard work, and not only their hard work, but working together as a team in whatever their pursuit happens to be, uh, rather than speaking too highly about them and artificially inflating their ego uh, with constant uh constant thought processes of it's all about you and 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 then they're going to think it's all about me you know and and i love the way you end that it's not just all about them they need the the boost they need the uh the pat on the back they need accolades but accolades need to be coupled with responsibility 
not to steal a line from Peter Parker, but with great power comes great responsibility. Great. That's not the first time we've brought that in on this podcast. But at the same time, it's really <laughs> so, so wise you words. About, uh, you've got children that are really good at sport, uh, and, and they're working hard. I mean, they are putting forth the effort. There's a place for recognizing where they excel. But at the same time, it can be said, you know, you excel. You're great at this. You you can lead the way in helping other people. But if you're going to help other people, you can't be cocky about it. Uh, With those accolades can come a responsibility to help move others along, whether they're talking about academics, whether they're talking about athletics. Most importantly, when we're talking about a relationship with God, uh, you've got the skill, you've got the strength, you've really got an ability here. Let's let's use it to help others. So, again, like you said, Chase, it's not all about self, but it's about using that to the glory of God, to the benefit of the other folks around us. So, uh, guys, great thoughts. Um, and, And, you know, backing up to Gideon, when good men make the mistake of putting too much pride in either their their possessions or their own physical priorities like he did with the ephod or when they make the mistake of putting too much pride in their own children. And remember, we're talking about good men. Gideon was a good man. The result can still be disastrous. Seventy sons, and there's a problem there anyway, but 70 sons, only one survived in the end. Let's go ahead and move on to Jephthah. Jephthah, Judges chapters 11 and 12. Here's a man who was an illegitimate son, exiled by siblings until men from his native home got in touch with him because of his valor and said, Jephthah, come lead us against the Ammonites. They're oppressing us. So God enabled Jephthah to to go in battle and successfully uh, defeat the Ammonites, Judges 11.33. As was mentioned earlier, Jephthah's problem was rashness. Before the battle, he vowed to offer as a burnt offering whatever first came out of his house to meet him if God would give him victory. That's chapter 11, verses 30 and 31. Apparently he expected to see uh, a little lamb or some uh, similar livestock or a clean animal exit the home first. But instead, here comes his daughter, his only child. She comes out to meet him first. Needless to say, it's a sad day. Now, at times, we've got to be willing to say, I don't know. I think we'll all agree that when we look at the events of Jephthah's life, we prefer to think that what happened was when she said, Father, keep your vow. And she went out and mourned her virginity for two months in the wilderness. Uh, We prefer to think that she went and served at the temple for the rest of her life uh, and and that that was how Jephthah fulfilled his vow. At the same time, we have to acknowledge that Scripture doesn't specify the ultimate outcome. And this is during the time of the, the judges, morally deteriorating years a downward spiral with such moral atrocities that you read Judges 17 through through 21, and, and it's hard for your stomach not to churn at the things these people are doing. And it is not beyond the scope of imagination that, that Jephthah might have actually carried out his vow by offering his daughter. I hope not. I pray not. But, but Scripture simply doesn't specify. All that being said, If Jephthah offered her as a literal burnt sacrifice, that's a sinful abomination, and it wasn't acceptable to God. If they're simply mourning over her committing herself to serve at God's tabernacle, that's kind of a shameful lamentation. Uh, They're mourning over committed service to God, and you have to question whether God's going to accept that. Either way, Jephthah's rashness had sad consequences. Now, Now, let's focus on the rashness. Chase in terms of rash vows, 
There are some men that are men of their word. If they say they're going to do it, they're going to do it. The problem is they're not men of God's word. They keep vows they never should have made. What might be some examples of rash vows or, or promises that dads can make today that are actually to the detriment of their families? Well, some of this goes back to what Matt was talking about earlier in dads not uh, emphasizing you know, activeness in the local church. So I'm thinking maybe a dad signs a contract for work that is going to place him outside of the home uh, for far too many hours uh, to the point where he's, uh, he's really not spending much time teaching his wife and children uh, when it comes to biblical matters. Uh, I often point out from Titus chapter 2 concerning the word homemaker. Uh, if a woman's work outside of the home causes her to neglect her work, her work inside the home, uh, then it's sinful. I mean, there's no way around it. If she's neglecting what she's supposed to be doing inside the home, then that's sinful. But when you really think about it, you know, it's it's easy for us to think about that from the wife's standpoint. But also, if a man is working so hard outside the home that he's neglecting what he's supposed to be doing inside the home, then it's sinful as well. Now, a man has the responsibility and the scriptural mandate to provide you know, for the physical needs of his household. If a man will not work, neither should he eat. The Bible is very plain about that. It gives that particular uh, job specifically to the man. Uh, that said, if he's providing physically, but he's not providing spiritually as well, that's a problem. And we've got to do both. We've got to provide for our families in the usual sense that we talk about the physical things they need, uh, food on the table, but we've also got to put the spiritual meat on the table, and we've got to talk to our our uh, kids and our wives and tell them, look, this is why we do the things we do as a family. These are the verses. We're going to read them as a family. We're going to emphasize them, and I hope that you'll emphasize these things to your families uh, when you grow up. And so uh, if we're not providing uh, both physically and spiritually, as the husbands, as the fathers, then something's got to give. Is the job going to give, or are our families going to give? Oftentimes, it's our families that end up being the ones that give, uh, and that should never, ever be. I think also uh, of maybe our wives uh, asking us something to this regard. Are we going to go to the church fellowship tonight? Oh, uh, we would, but I've promised the kids that we're going to go to Six Flags, and tonight's the night. Well, that's, uh, you know, Six Flags can wait. Spend time with the people of God. If you don't prioritize time with the people of God, then can you really expect your uh, your kids to do the same? And then even more serious, uh, well, I promised our son that uh, we're going to go hunting this weekend. You know, it's opening day, and uh, Sunday is today, and it happens to be the only day that we can go. And so we're going to go hunting instead of uh going to worship services this morning. Well, that's a Hebrews 10.25 problem. And not only is it a Hebrews 10.25 problem, not forsaking the assembly, but even more so, it's a Matthew 6.33 problem. That dad's not seeking first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And when he's not seeking first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, his kids, his wife are going to see that, and that makes it increasingly likely that his wife and kids very well may not be seeking first the kingdom of God and his righteousness as well. Thank you very much, man. So you've got a situation where, hey, dad makes promises and sometimes even with the best of intentions, but without the best of forethought. 
and in the end, uh, the family's relationship with God suffers. Now, Matt, let's look at this idea of rashness beyond just the idea of vows. And a case could be made that Jephthah uh, was involved in some rash actions after his vow when we get to Judges 12. Now, without getting into that, what about dads today? When a dad is prone to make rash decisions, what does that do to his influence, his example, his relationship with his children? Well, just kind of piggybacking off of what Chase said, um, this is something I know I've said it in the joint podcast. I don't know if I've said it on this one, but this is something I, I often tell myself. Um, and that is when you say yes to something, you're saying no to something else. And, and so when it comes to um, anything, you need to ask yourself, okay, if I say yes to this, what am I saying no to? So, you know, like we've been saying, you know, with these uh, attendance aspects, um, if I'm saying yes to the Six Flags thing and I'm saying no to the people of God, um, man, that's a, that's a poor choice. That is a very poor choice. Um, if you, uh, and if you do that, uh, ultimately, in all these different things that we've described, if you're saying yes to things other than God, you're saying no to God. And then your children are going to ultimately, they're going to do the same thing, except they're going to take it a step further. Maybe they don't even believe in God. I don't know. You know, there, there's all kinds of things to say here. But thinking about this same thought process, kind of, kind of keeping that in mind as we go through some of this, um, you know, you've got to be wise in your decision making. Uh, making a, a rash, um, rash decision um, you know, going going beyond just the vows aspect here, um, making rash decisions is, um, man, it's just simply not good. It's, it's unwise. Again, we, we keep coming back to this word wise, uh, but it shows a lack of understanding. Um, you kind of have to think about, you know, the implications of your decision making. Um, uh, for example, uh, if you're making rash decisions with finances, uh, those are going to have some dire consequences. You're going to find yourself in trouble uh, really quickly. Many of us have done that thing and gone, oh, I shouldn't have done that and uh, have learned from that and go, I'm not going to do that again. Um, yeah, that that's one thing. But what about this? We have to be careful about how quick we are to dole out punishments as as fathers. Um, maybe maybe we should think about what a proper punishment is. You know, um, there are, you know, when they're younger, uh, really, um, you give them a little swat, you know, and let them know that they shouldn't do that. And um, I think that that can be done in a good way. You you tell them, you know, look, I love you. You need not to do that. Don't do that. Um, as they get older, you probably should be doing that less and less because there are other more effective ways to uh, get their attention. You've If you've trained them early on with that process, as they get older, um, you can uh, come up with these effective punishments. Um but, you know, we sometimes are uh, really easy as, as dads to dole out these punishments. And that's why we have such verses as Ephesians 6, 4. You know, fathers provoke not your children to wrath. You know, we we are um, we we might tend to be upset when some of this stuff happens. We are, you know, that's kind of we tend to be a little bit more um, in tune with our anger. You know, I, I don't like uh, uh using the term uh, losing, you know, losing it uh, because you have found it. <laughs> you know, that is <laughs> what you have done. Um, 
listen, when it comes to our our children, uh, we need to show wisdom or else our children uh, will have to go somewhere else to find wisdom. And that could be very harmful. You don't want them seeking wisdom from their friends instead of you because dad makes rash decisions and yep. you can't you can't trust your dad. So you go to your friends. Well, you don't want that because guess what? Their friends don't know nearly as much as you do, even if you've made rash decisions, they're not going to know. And so, listen, they, you don't want them doing that. You don't want them to go to people who aren't Christians and ask for advice. Um, that maybe they go to public school, have all of these non-Christian friends. They go spend time at their non-Christian friends' houses, and they see a dad that's well put together, but he's not a Christian. They go ask him for advice. Well, you know, that may or may not be good, depending on what the advice is. But then here's the sad part about all this. It's sad if they have to go somewhere else because you can't provide what they need. And I, I would hate to think about that for any father. Um, and uh, so anyway, you know, we've got to be careful in our decision making, not to be too rash, but to actually think things through and go, OK, you know, if I make this decision again, though, if I'm saying yes to this, what am I saying no to? And then do I like the result of saying no to that? You know, am I am I comfortable with this? Is um, am I saying no to something good where this is not as as good? Maybe it's just bad altogether. Um, don't make rash vows. Don't make rash vow in anything. Don't make rash decisions um, because it can be detrimental to our influence both in the church outside the church with our families in our example people can't trust us because you know what we we don't make good decisions uh and then of course uh, i think too you know uh, you've got not only a relationship with the children but what about the relationship with your spouse if you make those bad decisions all the time uh it's gonna be hard for your uh for your wife to trust you and things chase anything you'd add to that i think you uh Covered it spot on, Matt. You know, I can't help but think about, we talk about Jephthah and we talk about rashness. We go back to Barak and we're talking about hesitancy. And there's a fine line between rashness and just overreacting and hesitancy and never reacting. You know, with rashness, you simply fail to count the cost. You don't even weigh the decision. You just make one instantaneously. With hesitancy, you, you overthink it. And there really is a strong place for using the, the wisdom of Proverbs and the wisdom of Scripture to uh, weigh the options and then realize that there are times when we don't have all the variables, we're not going to have them all, and, and make the, the best decisions we can make. And sometimes what leads to hesitancy is a person too prideful to be willing to say I'm wrong. Sometimes what leads to rashness is a person too stupid to realize he can be wrong. Uh, but there's a fine line between the two. Can I say stupid? Well, I did. All right. So anyway, let's <laughs> forward. Uh, let's talk about Samson. Samson is uh, Judges chapters 13 through 16, born to a barren mother, a Nazarite from birth, miraculous strength, hero to the nation. But if he had a weakness, it was women. They were his downfall. Now, if his strength was legendary, his troubles with women were just as legendary. The short-lived marriage to the Philistine wife that betrayed him told the, her, her countrymen about his riddle so that they wouldn't kill her family. The, the chain of events that followed after that when he wreaked havoc on the Philistines. Then there's the next Philistine harlot where he 
spent a flippant evening with her and uh, a trap was set. Of course, he had the strength to, to burst through it. But at the same time, a, a flippant decision. Or you get to Delilah, the one who ultimately manipulated and betrayed him. Now, Matt, just overviewing Samson's life, would it be fair to say that after that first marriage, when it failed, he seems to have settled for more shallow, sensual, short-lived relationships? And if so, is there any lesson in that for dads today, particularly the ones who have experienced failed marriages? I think uh, obviously the answer to that is, yeah, Samson, I think that is a fair assessment for Samson. Um, so let's, let's think about this, this next question here. You know, what about dads who are no longer married? And I'm just going to kind of lump that all together. Um, but um, I'm just going to give, give one thing here. Um, after failure is not a time to give in and give up. That is a time to step up. Um, you know, it's, you know, football season right now. And, you know, many of us enjoy football. Um, when your team is down, do you want them to keep fighting or do you want them to give up? Like, I don't care. You know, um, we're recording this after my team got an embarrassing defeat. Uh, yeah, it was bad. Um, but you don't want them to just give up. What do you want them to do? You know, which one is better? You want them to keep fighting or you want them to give up? Which quality is more admirable, you know? Uh, so maybe some dads have made some bad decisions, you know, uh, but don't keep making bad decisions. Um, show your children how to overcome adversity. Um, even if you don't have custody of your children, maybe you've done something wrong. Well, teach them to overcome and be a good dad from, from there on out. You know, just give up. That's not what you're supposed to do. Um, and then two, uh, don't give in to those temptations and make a huge spiritual embarrassment of yourself. Um, I've known too many people do this. I'm sure everybody that's um, listening um, has known of somebody to do this. It's just, it's just embarrassing. I just, I think about it when I've, I've seen uh, guys do this very thing. They've made one bad decision and then they go ahead and they continue to make bad decision after bad decision. Just come on, man. Cowboy it up. Do the right thing. No, like admit that you've done wrong, first of all, and then live right. Be a good example. You're gonna lose your kids. If you don't lose your your kids for eternity, you know, that that they um they don't follow your footsteps, you know, like hopefully they don't. But if you don't, if you don't eat, lose them that way, you're gonna lose them, at least in this life. And so there are some some major, major consequences here. But, you know, we don't need to live these these uh, uh, in these sensual desires. We don't need to live for that. What we need to do is is uh, say, you know what, um, I've messed up. I want to live for the Lord now um, and I'm going to be that strong example for my children uh, and knowing that, you know, I've I've done wrong. Now, let's say you're in a different scenario. Uh, maybe it is that, um, um, you know, you you don't uh, maybe you're not a able to be remarried, but um, you do have your kids there in the home. Um, use that as extra motivation to do the right thing, you know, and teach you, them. Yeah. Teach them. You know, um, you know, that's what this all all is all about here. We're trying to uh, encourage men to 
um, do Bible time at home in the evenings. Do that with your kids. Show them that what a good example you can be. Um, don't um, don't be known for the bad in your life. All these men that we're talking about, they're not mentioned in Hebrews 11 for their bad. They're mentioned for their good. Now, they did bad stuff, but we're remembering them for the good. You may have done something bad. Be remembered for something else other than that. Great points, man. And, and, you know, it really can be said yesterday's failures, yesterday's disappointments, whether they're my fault or not, they don't have to define tomorrow's decisions or even today's. Uh, no matter how sad the past is, it can be left to the past and let's move forward. Whatever shavels or rambles or uh, tatters might still be there. We can press forward and hold the Lord's hand as we do it. Now, let's think about this. You step back and you look at Samson and his promiscuity was actually coupled with an increase in a sense of invincibility. For instance, that brazen stay with the harlot in Gaza, or there's a progression in his divulging of details to Delilah. She kept asking, what's the secret of his strength? And each time he gave her more of a clue as to what it actually was. And every time he lied to her uh, about the full truth of it. But every time she took that lie and tried to use it to render him powerless. I don't know about you, but if I've been dumb enough to lie, I'm not going to be dumb enough to say, hey, I'll tell her the truth now. She's tried to use the lies on me. But he eventually told her exactly how to weaken him. He should have known she was going to shave his head. But apparently he, he really wanted to flirt with a close shave, so to speak. He tells her anyway. And when it comes down to it, the, the only conclusion is that he seemed to feel invincible just inching closer and closer to that line that God had set to the point that he crossed it. Now, Chase, all that being said, when husbands and fathers start to flirt with promiscuity, is there any sense in which they become increasingly brazen as though they're invincible or can't be caught? And if that's the case, what's that say for Christian men today, especially husbands and dads, about them needing to be aware and be cautious of that trend of getting progressively desensitized to the repercussions. Well, that's the way the devil works. He works incrementally. Um, I think of things like TV shows and movies that glorify sexual sin uh, and divorce, trying to normalize it. Pornography, uh, it's proven that people who use pornography typically resort to more and more uh, progressive deviancy and obscenity to achieve the same high, so to speak. Uh, but you know, soft core, quote unquote, pornography is just as dangerous. Uh, it used to be the Sports Illustrated swimsuit magazine um, that ensnared a lot of men, even Christian men who otherwise were trying to be pretty faithful uh, in, in their endeavors, various other areas of their lives, but they would struggle with something like that. Uh, now I think it's things like Instagram and uh, TikTok videos uh, watching an attractive woman dance for the webcam uh, or wearing highly revealing and seductive clothing, uh, we may try to rationalize it. Well, oh, uh, I'm just listening to the joke she's telling. Uh, I'm not paying attention to her body. Uh, give me a break, right? I mean, we're all men here, and uh, if, if that's taking place on the screen, uh, any healthy man will tell you, it's not possible to continuously stare at such an image uh, 
of a woman who is not his wife, who is inappropriately dressed or moving in inappropriate ways uh, and not end up landing in sin. I mean, it's just not going to happen. And so the Bible says in 1 Corinthians uh, 6, verse 18, that we are to flee fornication, flee it. Every sin that a man do, uh, doeth is with without uh, the body, but he that committeth fornication sinneth against his own body. So flee it. Don't flirt with it. Uh, and that means anything at all that uh, is going to lead down that road. Just don't mess with it. Stay away from it. So we talk about these these sins the, uh, of the flesh, the, the sensual ideas. And, and when it comes down to it, chances are we all know situations where uh, there's a man, maybe he's a Christian, maybe he's just someone we know, but he he gets caught, but he's become so brazen that he even tries to, to lie through that because of the progression of it. And some are so brazen, you think, how could he be so stupid as to have taken that many chances? And the fact of the matter is, he thought he was invincible. He was so arrogant, and the pride just built through the progression of it that he didn't see repercussions. Uh, and it's a, a sad, sad situation. He ends up being like the guy of Proverbs 5 that said, I've not listened to the instruction of my teachers. I'm Now I'm in all evil in the midst of the congregation and assembly. I, I, I've thrown it all away. Let's move forward and talk about Samuel. First Samuel chapters one through eight give a, an overview of his early life prior to Israel wanting a king. Now he, like Samson, was a, a miraculously born son of a barren mother. He's reared from his youth in tabernacle service. God's word actually came to him, whereas God hadn't spoken to Israel in years. In Samuel's life, God and Israel get back on speaking terms, so to speak. Samuel was integral to breaking Philistine oppression. He's the one that summoned the nation together, offered the sacrifices while the, the battle at Mizpah uh, took place. Samuel's hero resume is indisputable and undeniable. He's Israel's final judge. And ironically, the final judge exercised poor judgment when he entrusted judgment to his unjust sons. They're greedy. They take bribes. They pervert judgment. 1 Samuel 8, 1 through 3. Good man, but his sons weren't. Matt, as a parent, what did Samuel seem to have in common with the man that was his predecessor and mentor, Eli, the, the priest and previous judge? And also, based on the difference between how God dealt with Eli and how God dealt with Samuel, what might be the distinction between Eli and Samuel as fathers? Yeah, so um, I know that uh, this is uh, one of those hard things to talk about uh, just because of, uh, you know, what what Eli and Samuel are, are wrapped up in. And uh, while there are some uh, good qualities, again, um, they have some definite uh, failings here. I have uh, um, oftentimes thought about Hannah, who, uh, of course, has Samuel and and uh, then gives Samuel to Eli and think about the wisdom of that. And uh, while it's great that you know, Samuel is there to serve God, uh, his only father uh, figure here is Eli on the, on the um, everyday. And Eli has some terrible sons. And so what does Samuel do? He grows up. When he has sons, he has terrible sons. And so that's his, um, uh, that, that's, you know, the, the common, you know, thread here. They, they share this. They are not 
they did not do well in their homes. Um, this is not good. Um, but, you know, of course, when you look back to Eli, um, Eli is told, hey, your, your sons, are, they're doing some awful stuff here. <laughs> they, are, um, they are sinful. But, you know, when he finally hears about it, I kind of, I kind of wonder just because of, um, you know, just some of the context of this, if Eli is not um, participating in some of the greediness here, uh, speaking of Eli being fat and how, you know, um, I don't know, I'm just saying, um, I may be me wrong on some of this, but um, I don't know if he's taking part in the extra offerings of food that uh, the sons were taking. Um, but Anyway, all we know, though, is seriously that what does he do? He he gets on to his sons, but it's just kind of like a little slap on the wrist. Like, I mean, you shouldn't be doing this, guys. And and uh, so, you know, he is, you know, dealt out judgment by God. OK, well, you know, that's it. You're done. You know, that's and this is how you're going to die. This is how uh, uh, you're going to die. This is how your son's going to die. Like, this is all going to happen. You know, this is. And so um, all that being said. Samuel as well, um, you know, he has these bad sons. Now, this is the beginning then of um, having the kingship because um, the opposite, um, you know, thing happens. Now, um, Eli, he he doesn't really get on to his sons. Well, um, you know, we don't have much of, a, of an example here about Samuel and what he does, but we do know that, you know, he realizes, okay, fine, you know, He's upset by it, but um, he's upset more uh, that they want a king. Uh, he's upset, you know, um, he's upset because, you know, he is no longer being looked to uh, and, you know, they they want a king instead. And so he kind of takes it personally. God says, well, they're not rejecting you. They're they're rejecting me. Uh, and then he goes on to help um, do what God wants them to do. You know what God he's he's helping God's plan. Uh, he is just following what God sets out. Uh, whereas Eli really doesn't do that. You know Eli um, should have uh, really uh, considered what his sons were doing and um, probably ha should have been checking up on them way before this uh, to figure out what was going on. Um, but then when he finds out, it's really not, he doesn't treat it as big of a deal as what it is. Um, you know, Samuel, on the other hand, continues on to do what God wants him to do. I think you can look to other people in the Bible that do much the same thing. And I think the, I think a comparison that we might even make in the New Testament is between Judas and, and, um, and Peter, um, both betray, but what does one do? One just continue, continues down the wrong path while Peter straightens up. And um, I think there's a, a decent comparison there. You know, and there's something to be said about the fact that uh, Eli's sons were operating in the realm of the the tabernacle. Uh, they were in a priestly position. And yes, they were robbing people of their sacrifices. They were committing fornication with women. They'd essentially turned the worship of Jehovah into the worship of Ashtaroth or Baal. They turned it right. into the, the promiscuity. Um, whereas... Samuel's sons, uh, they're operating in the realm of judgment and more of the idea of governmental uh, judicial exercises and not necessarily serving at the tabernacle. They're down in Beersheba. Uh, all that being said, um, they did serve 
different roles. Uh, and, and there seems to be a bit of a difference in the severity, but by and large, the real difference comes to the fact of how dad reacted to it. And, yeah. uh, you know, as you said, Matt, Eli's problem was that uh, he, he almost acted like he was helpless with the sons. Mm-hmm. Um, now, as far as Samuel, Chase, Samuel was apparently not as negligent of a father as Eli, but let's think about this. If all of the elders of Israel knew of Samuel's son's injustice, how likely is it, and that's 1 Samuel 8, 4 and 5, how likely is it that Samuel had no clue whatsoever about their faults? Uh, How might this be relevant for dads today who somehow seem to be oblivious to the obvious well-known flaws of their own children? Well, I think uh, the key here lies in distraction. I think uh, he was distracted, and I think a lot of dads these days in particular are distracted. If the first thing a dad does uh, when he gets home from work is, you know, plops down on the couch or plops down in his easy chair and uh, then flips the TV on, kind of veges out uh, in front of the TV and just completely ignores his wife and children, then uh, he's distracted. And, you know, when, when you fathered your children, you signed up for a job. You signed up for an extremely important task, and that job includes paying attention to your wife and uh, kids and asking them questions on, you know, how are they doing? How was their day? Teaching them, uh, like we mention all the time from Deuteronomy chapter 6, teach them when you when you uh, lie down, when you rise up, when you walk by the way, when you enter the house, etc. If you're not ready to do that, then by all means, don't be doing things that leads to having children, right? If you're not ready to step up and lead your family, then don't be doing the things that leads to having a family because you're just going to end up neglecting those children's greatest needs, which are their spiritual needs and your wife's greatest needs as well. Uh, Every dad should know uh, what sins his wife struggles with, what sins his children struggle with, and should be actively moving his wife away and and his children away from those particular things, Uh, much less the things that he struggles with himself personally. And uh, incidentally, it is often the very things that he struggles with that are preventing him from helping his wife and children with the things that they struggle with. So distractions, uh, it can definitely uh, creep into our lives and, and all of us. It can creep into our lives and keep us from working on the things that we need to work on uh, toward the end goal uh, as our families. Could it be the case that pride comes into this as well, just a little bit? I mean, with everything we read about Samuel in Scripture, kind of like Gideon, we want to give him the benefit of the doubt. But there's a certain, you mentioned distraction, there's a certain denial uh, that some parents have of, oh, well, my children won't mess up. My, uh, my children are making mistakes. They're doing it right. Uh And uh, the fact of the matter is, you know, our children are derived from us and we're messed up and they they might have their own mistakes, too. Uh, So there's uh, there seems to be a certain level of denial there. But definitely, I think, uh, you know, the middle the middle letter in pride is I. And so when we we become so self-centered that it's all about, you know, me, 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 I, 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 uh, then we do tend to become distracted toward whatever it is that that we're interested in instead of what's best for for our family. So unless we keep our eyes open and our minds objective, uh, we as dads can become sort of like Samuel also. 
the dad who's the last person to learn about his children's well-known misbehaviors isn't doing his job. Now, let's talk about one more individual uh, in our character studies, and that's David. David is also mentioned in Hebrews 11.32. David, the shepherd, the singer of Israel, the psalmist, the soldier, the, the sovereign ruler. He's king. He's the giant slayer. He's the man after God's own heart, handpicked by God to rule Israel. And we can't give all of the accolades for David in what time we have today. But victory after victory, triumph after triumph, David, the, the one through whose line Messiah would come. And until 2 Samuel 11, that's when David stayed home. And then it started to turn away from victory. He should have been going to war with his army, as was mentioned earlier. But his problems start because he has a prolonged look. He's walking on his palace rooftop. He sees a beautiful woman named Bathsheba bathing in plain view. He inquires about her. He finds out that she's the wife of one of his best soldiers, Uriah. And he sends for her to come to him. And they didn't come to play Parcheesi. She arrives. And they commit adultery. Now, she later sends word to David that she's pregnant, which, by the way, the rape victim doesn't send word to her rapist first. Hey, I'm pregnant. Uh, Bathsheba's very much complicit in this behavior. Uh, we're not even going to have time to debate that. But the point is, we're looking at David. Now, David, in trying to cover his tryst, proceeded to employ deception, drunkenness, and then death, resulting in the military murder of Uriah. When God sent the prophet Nathan to tell David about his guilt, David received uh, the word of multiple punishments. Because of what he had done, God's going to raise up evil, evil from out of David's house. Some of David's wives are going to be taken from him, uh, and a neighbor would take them, and that's the shame of what Absalom would do to ten of David's concubines. And the child that was born of adultery would die. Now, these punishments are detailed in 2 Samuel 12. They're fulfilled when that child passes away. David's son Absalom leads a rebellion and so forth. Ultimately, David prevailed. But let's face it, his name was forever tarnished and his family was indeed irreparably damaged. And all of those troubles started with his sins and all of those sins, murder, deception, adultery, started with one prolonged look at a woman whose body he had no business beholding. She should have been off limits. Now, Matt, all that being said, Without getting into a full discussion of uh, Bathsheba's complicity, what could David have done differently upon seeing Bathsheba bathing from his rooftop? Just look away. I mean, that 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 would have been the thing. This was not uncommon. I mean, they had um, uh, places to bathe on the roof, um, you know, but. The, the fact of the matter is just just look away. Don't don't, you know, um, look at this, you know, go back inside, you know, go away from it. Um, the problem is that he continued um, that that is a problem when it comes to any of of these kind of things is got to look away, get a, get away from it, uh, go somewhere else um, because you don't need to continue to look. It's not. Uh, it's not wrong of you to accidentally see something. It's wrong of you to continue to see something. And and so, um, you know, that's kind of like like this. You know, I'm, I'm trying to teach my children and, um, you know, my sons in particular. And, you know, I'm, I'm going through the mall and there's, um, you know, like a Victoria's Secret or something. There's, you know, there, there are sometimes um, a few different stores in the mall that are going to have um, some 
you know, lewdness to it, nakedness, whatever you want to, whatever you want to say. And, um, you know, I, I try to know where those stores are, not so I can look at them, but so I can look the other way. And uh, whenever it comes up, I try to know that in particular, not only for myself, but for my sons. And so I can go, hey, look over there. Look at that. Like there, there's um, where we used to live um, in Kentucky. There was a, like a video game store that was like close to that. It's so, oh, look at that. Look at that advertisement for that game. Well, that's pretty cool. And we'd walk on by. And um, that's what we have to do. We have to try to keep ourselves from this stuff. That's, you know, whether we're out in public, um, you know, or we're, you know, as Chase mentioned a few minutes ago, um, you're on, you know, I'm not on TikTok, but, you know, Instagram, something like that, Facebook, you know, whatever you're on. Um, don't, don't, don't search that out. You know, if you see it, go on by. Don't. And if that's a temptation for you, get rid of social media altogether. Yeah, that's that's a better thing to do if you have to just get rid of it you don't need to don't need to look at that stuff that's what david should have done david you know first of all as was already mentioned david was not in the right place this is a time where he should have been off at war he should have been at the right place to begin with um second of all if he's not in the right place when he's he ended up being definitely in the wrong place he should have gotten to a better place you, know, you mentioned the idea of looking away. There's something that's often uh, recommended in this discussion of, of modesty and uh, protecting our eyes, making a covenant with our eyes, as Job said, and it's the idea of bouncing eyes. Uh, and the bouncing of eyes is as soon as your eyes land on something where they shouldn't be, well, bounce away. Just look somewhere else. Now, there may be days when you're walking through Walmart and you just spend your entire day bouncing your head everywhere because there's so much indecency around you in our society. But bouncing the eyes is actually a, a term that kind of tends to stick, and it's something worth considering. And uh, indeed, it's worth training children to do. Uh, I can remember uh, going to see uh, a, a movie in theaters with our sons, and there came across the screen a, a, a bathing suit scene. And uh, I turned to look down, and uh, our sons, all to the side of me, they're all looking down as well before I even looked in their direction. Uh, they can be trained to do that. Um and it doesn't take a lot of effort, provided that we train them early enough, instead of being like so many men that are trained to stare throughout their formative teenage years to the point that when they get married, they can't keep their eyes off of other women because they've just trained themselves to look at the feminine form whenever it's in the present. Chase. Now, David didn't necessarily go up to the rooftop intending to become a voyeur or an adulterer, but it happened nonetheless. Is it possible for good men today to be minding their own business and still be tempted with images that they really didn't, they didn't set out to find? Definitely. You know, everything from billboards uh, driving down the interstate to music on the radio causing a lustful ear. You know, a lot of times we talk about the, lust, the lustful eye. What about the lustful ear? Some of the thought processes that can come when we're listening to things we shouldn't listen to, uh, to the clothing that you see shopping uh, at Walmart or as uh, Matt mentioned, you, you know, you go in through the mall and you're seeing things that uh, shouldn't be seen. Um, it, it might be ads that pop up uh, in the internet browser or uh, on your email or on Facebook or what have you. Uh, it's everywhere. Unfortunately, these days, there's a uh, nobility to blush these days when it comes to lewdness and, uh, because we live in that kind of a world, 
we should be increasingly on guard about this particular subject. Uh, it could be on the job. You know, if you're a guy that makes a lot of house calls, be very careful uh, because there could be a situation that, that comes up unexpectedly. Uh, don't ever go into a house uh, with a woman inviting you in uh, if you're alone. Uh, just don't do that. Don't ever go that direction. Um, I personally agree with what's called the Mike Pence rule um, and something that he has uh, has uh, made public that he will not put himself in a situation uh, where it's him and another woman who's not his wife alone, uh, ever, uh, behind closed doors. He's just not going to do it. That's a good rule to have. That's something that we need to observe. Many men mightier than you have fallen in this regard. And so uh, if they have fallen to sexual sin, then you have to guard yourself to make sure that you also don't don't uh, fall to this particular terrible thing. If it hit Solomon, if it hit David, if it hit Samson, yeah, it can hit us. Matt, David's problem started with a lustful look at the naked form of a woman whose body he should have considered off limits. And all he had to do was take a stroll on his rooftop. Now, let's go ahead and uh, hit what might seem obvious. What modern avenue makes it even easier than going to the roof for a man to lay eyes on the disrobed bodies of off-limit women today? Yeah, well, with the invention of the Internet, um, it has become very easy. Um, you know, I, I know that some people will blame the Internet. Um, internet is in itself neutral. Uh, it can be used for good or evil. Uh, some people have used it for evil, and um, that's not good. Um, so obviously, you can look at it on a, on, on a computer, but I think even worse is the fact that uh, smartphones are such a big deal um, and that uh, you can easily uh, sequester yourself and uh, be able to look at your cell phone uh, and look at things that are uh, sinful. And uh, I think that this this ends up being the biggest um, you know takeaway now. Um, you know how do you how do you overcome that? You know, um, you may be that if you do not have the strength to just not look and you know who you are, you know, if you go, oh man, I, I can't do this, man, go get go get one of those dumb phones, you know, get get away from the smartphone, you know, um, do that instead. Um, you know, maybe even keep that cell phone in a public place, you know, um, sit it out to where anybody could pick it up and look at it. Um, you know, as far as when you're in the home, you know, if, if you, you know, um, I'll tell you this, um, telltale sign that um, a, uh, a uh, spouse is um, close to infidelity or in some kind of infidelity, they're cheating on you, um, is the fact that they won't let you see their phone. Um, be open, you know, have your cell phone out there. Wife needs to know what your uh, password is for your cell phone. You need to be able to see all that. Um, so uh, have some accountability uh, in that regard. Absolute transparency. Um, Chase, suppose you got a man with a problem with pornography. Even if it never progresses to adultery, which let's face it, it typically progresses to, to more and more uh, deviancy as the word you used earlier. Even if he never progresses to the point of adultery, how might his enjoyment of pornography and looking at the, 
the uncovered bodies of other women damage his marriage? Well, the lust that leads to the adultery itself is also sinful. Jesus talks about that. And um, it leads to breakdown of communication um, as well as breakdown of trust, which are both essential to marriage. And many marriages have been harmed uh, not only by physical affairs, obviously, but also by the emotional affairs that sometimes happen. And they can often do just as much damage. Um, it could be a lust and pornography thing, or it could be a, well, you know, uh, there's a coworker here and we haven't done anything per se, uh, but there's this obvious emotional uh, bonding that's taking place that should not be happening. It's totally inappropriate. And uh, you continue down that road in an inappropriate friendship with uh, somebody who's of the opposite sex, who's not your spouse. 99 times out of 100, if not 999 times out of 1,000, if not higher percentage, it, it, it does end up eventually leading to becoming physical. And so just stay away from those kind of inappropriate relationships and uh, just guard your marriage with everything that you have. So uh, one of the ways that you can guard your marriage is to avoid the pornograph pornographic uh, images and material that would lead to those sorts of uh, thought processes. You know, it's been said that the wife may never get over that feeling of inadequacy when she finds out that her husband is looking at pictures of other women that he can never touch, but he's getting more enjoyment out of that than his actual experiences with her. And that is, that is making a strong statement to a spouse when, when that occurs. Um, sadly, the, appeal to pornography has become so strong among women that uh, it's as regular with women as it is men now, but we're focusing on dads. So let's, let's point this question at Matt. Now, Chase just discussed the, the damage it can do to the marriage. Suppose you got a man with a problem with pornography, Matt, and even if it never progresses to adultery, how might that pornography damage his children? Well, I think that there's a couple of things to mention. Obviously, as we're talking about the marriage relationship before, um, the relationship with the wife is not going to be the same. And the kids are going to see that. And they're not going to know what to do with their own uh, marriage in the future. And so this example is so, so devastating. Um, so that relationship with the wife won't be the same. And the kids are going to see it. I think that's first and foremost, uh, but not to just you know completely repeat what, what Chase has said. Uh, another thing, this is uh, foreign to most men, I think. I hope. I don't, you know, this just boggles my mind um, how uh, some men that are wrapped up in pornography eventually come down to the uh, sexual abuse of their own children. Um, I don't I don't even understand this. I'm glad I don't understand this. I hope nobody listening understands this at all. Um, but. How devastating would that be? Um, you are really making things difficult for that child for the rest of their life. Um, another thing here is is that when we are wrapped up and we're um, uh, sowing to the flesh here, this is um, selfishness. Uh, and if we're selfish people, we're certainly not going to be helpful to and humble <laughs> enough to help others, uh, even if it's our own children. We're going to be thinking about 
I can imagine that we'd be thinking, oh, hey, when's the next time I can do this instead of spending time with your children um, uh, or spending time with your spouse and um, and trying to because this is a kind of an addiction thing and uh, you get somewhat of a, a high from it. And you're going to be seeking a high. Um, so this this could I'm sure we could name a whole lot of other things. These are the really the three things I was thinking about when I was thinking about this is that that relationship with the spouse it really, I think, is a big one because um, your children are just going to see that there's no real intimacy between mom and dad. And of course, they're not going to see all of the intimacy. I get that. And that's good. But um, what we are talking about is just the closeness, you know, um, you know, if a man feels guilty for what he's doing, which I hope he would, then, you know, he's not going to hold his wife's hand and he's not going to put his arm around her and they're not going to cuddle up on the couch and, and they're not going to kiss and all those different things. And uh, you know what? I, I, I certainly believe that there is an appropriate amount of that, that your children need to see, you know, they need to see that lovingness between a husband and wife, you know, uh, obviously, you know, within the reason there. Um, but um, what we have to do is, is uh, look at this and go um, again, you know, if if a man is choosing these things, if he's saying yes to pornography, he's saying no to his marriage and his children, you know, other relationships are going to hurt. How can how can that man have a good, solid relationship um, that is uh, just say associated with another couple? You can't have a good, close couple uh, related because I'm, I'm guessing you're going to want to be having those sort of lewd thoughts about other women too. Right. And so you can't have a good relationship with, with other people. Um, this is going to hurt your relationships in so many regards. So I'll, yeah, I'll, just, I guess I'll hit that right there. It just breaks everything. Yeah. yeah. You know, something, something else we've discussed uh, uh, an eighties commercial that parents that use drugs have children that use drugs. We made the point that, parents that love God, have children that love God. Well, yeah. it can also be said that dads that view pornography tend to have children that view pornography. And yeah. uh, there was a time when they would find dad's stash of magazines. Well, nowadays it's all digital. But that being said, uh, parents can't typically keep everything secret from their children. And dad's habits and faults will frequently become the children's and the earlier they pick it up the more they become desensitized to actual intimacy the more their expectations and their relationships are damaged later in life the harder time they have in their own families and homes all because dad made the decisions that he made so many years ago so yeah the uh, the the damage that's done is actually just immeasurable uh chase our focus is on getting our families into the Bible. What kind of impact will wandering eyes have on a dad's efforts to teach his children the Bible? Uh, whether he's the dad that his children see him looking at other women that walk by or they, they know that he's uh, looking at those uh, digital images he shouldn't view. What, what's that going to do to his ability to teach them God's word? Well, I mean, one of the most fundamental commands that uh, is given for a father and a husband is uh, for him to honor the marriage vows that he's made to his wife. And the children are going to recognize whether or not he's doing that. 
So if a dad is not doing that, then what are the chances that he's truly honoring the rest of God's commands? So I think it totally undermines the message of obey God's word tremendously if uh, a dad is not obeying God's word in, in this regard. All right. Well, guys, those are the characters we wanted to examine today. We've talked about Barak. We've talked about Gideon, Jephthah, Samuel, Samson, David. And they're all heroes. I mean, they are all individuals whose faith put them in faith's hall of fame. At the same time, we can learn from their mistakes. And on a light note, let's go to finding the fun. Uh, because we've tried this season uh, to end each episode with just some practical ways, especially with our family Bible time, to help engage uh, our family in the Bible time by making it fun. Matt, what's an idea that you would you'd put on the table today? Um, well, you know, we've, um, I don't know if I said this last time, I think maybe I did, but, um, man, we've just been having fun with, um, uh, some charades and things like that. Um, um, I actually, you know, as far as, um, you know, this podcast has been helpful for, for me, giving me ideas from you guys, uh, and doing things that I want to do differently. And, uh, so we kind of implemented, we hadn't been doing this, but we implemented, uh, the Friday, uh, fun night for Bible time. And uh, so we try to do different games and um, that's been really nice for us. My kids enjoy that a lot. And uh, I think that that's something that anybody can do and you can do any kind of game, you know, um, you know, Bible Jeopardy or something like that. And um, yeah, I, I've, we've enjoyed it. So um, this has been helpful for, for my family as well. Chase. Yeah. Kind of going back to one of the things that I've emphasized on this podcast and that is the singing. And uh, I've got young kids. Uh, our oldest is eight, and our youngest is uh, four months. So one of the things that we love to do is uh, sing a lot of the VBS-style songs. And uh, my kids in particular, some of their favorites are The Lord's Army, uh, This Little Light of Mine, Roll the Gospel Chariot. And on that one, we, uh, we always make sure And when it says, uh, if a brother's in the way, we will stop and pick him up. So I'll pick up my son and raise him real high <laughs> to the ceiling. And then uh, if the sister's in the way, we will, uh, you know, stop and pick her up. So I'll raise uh, the daughters. And we've got three of them now. So my arms are getting pretty weak. But uh, so <laughs> we've, uh, you know, they always love that one. They get a kick out of that one. And then uh, Jesus loves the little children. So we sing through uh, the normal uh, verses there. But then we'll add in, you know, Jesus loves all the so-and-so's, all the different, you know, our kids' names, every one of them, like every Andrew is one of our kids' names, every Andrew in the world, Jesus loves every one of them, you know, so <laughs> that sort of thing. We kind of make it practical and personal by inserting their names into uh, Jesus Loves the Little Children. And then one of their personal favorites is the Hippopotamus song. That song, for whatever reason, I don't know, it's not my favorite, uh, but my <laughs> kids love it. So one of these days I need to sing that for our Bible time as well. But, uh, yeah, the singing, that's something that my kids really, really look forward to. Nice. Uh, for us, uh, something I've not mentioned yet, but uh, you know, I have mentioned that we do Proverbs, and we try to read a, a chapter a night. And um, when, you're, when you're reading it over and over and over again uh, for years on end, before long, your, your voice can become monotonous. So one of the things we've started doing is actually um, – Kind of doing voice impressions as we read. So at this point, I'm the one that reads and the rest of the family fills in the blanks. And uh, I'll just use different different voices and impressions as I go through. For instance, uh, Proverbs 6. My son, if thou be sure if thou 
kind of stricken that hand with a stranger. And then they will actually try to imitate that impression when they feel it. Uh, sometimes you can't tell what the accent is because I'm not really good at them, but it's just fun and it kind of keeps them engaged. So uh, don't be afraid to be silly every now and then uh, when you're instilling uh, facts and information and details and staying engaged in, in the Bible. But now, uh, Scott, if you're willing to do that at Forest Hill on Sunday, I'll be impressed. <laughs> I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. <laughs> How much is it worth to you? No. Uh, <laughs> but uh, yeah, just uh, just fun stuff like that. But guys, we've actually covered a lot today, uh, so much so that uh, the scattered abroad directors may scatter us abroad. We're going over two hours at this point. Uh, are there any other thoughts from either of you guys that you would add to what we've discussed today? No, just uh I was just going to say, just make sure, again, you realize how serious all this is, the stuff we're covering on this podcast, uh, especially, hopefully there's a lot of uh, fathers, you know, husbands listening uh, to the things that we're we're talking about, because um, it's so important. We don't have all the answers. Uh, You know, I'm figuring this out as I go, Uh, but we've got God's word and it tells us what to do. And we need to make sure and and emphasize in our homes the things that God's word tells us to do. You know, something I would add to that, Chase, and something that we could probably go back and add to every one of those tough topics. We don't always know the answers. And there are times when if you're in a congregation where there are elders, don't be afraid to go to the elders when you've got these things that have come up. And you say, I don't know what to do. My child's come to me with this. And don't be afraid to go to uh, another trusted Christian uh, when you genuinely need advice and you're just not sure the most prudent approach forward. You're not go- uh, Don't be going trying to spread gossip, but when you need to reach out for help, be willing to reach out for help. Uh, well, guys, that's, that's all the time we've got for this month and then some. Uh, but we hope, uh, we hope you guys that are listening will join us again. We continue to ask where are all the godly men. Next month, we're going to be thinking about some heroes. Uh, as that aren't known for being fathers, but their manhood sure stands above the fray. Uh, the topic's going to be enduring manhood, and we look forward to, uh, to having you with us again next month. Thank you very much.